You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church Livonia. It is great to be here with you today. Uh, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Life Church Livonia. I just went on vacation this last week and I'm coming back feeling refreshed, ready for Esther week four. Ooh, ooh. Uh, and if you missed the first couple weeks of Esther, let me catch you up to speed, okay? Because we're in a great series on this really, really profound book. In week number one, Alex Sr. Uh, took us through how the name of God is never mentioned one time in the book of Esther, and how in our own lives we can often feel that way too, like God is absent and not present in both our own culture and lives. But the book of Esther shows us that even in a super broken world and culture, God is always on the move. In week two, Nate Wahlberg helped us look at the fact that even though Esther and Mordecai are biblical heroes, like all of us, they didn't start that way. And Esther and Mordecai, in their early days, worked hard to fit into their Persian culture and actively tried to hide their faith and national identities. But the gospel is not about God choosing perfect people who are the righteous white knights. It's about choosing normal people like you and like me, calling us out of compromise and into heavenly purposes. Week three, last week, Bob Hoy talked about how Mordecai saves King Xerxes' life. And something begins to change in Mordecai. He starts to come out of hiding his faith and his national identity, and he experiences a turning point that causes him to take a stand for his faith and not bow down and worship a gentleman named Haman. And there are some consequences to that that we're going to talk about today that he did not bank on having. As we begin today, I just want to take a moment and pray, just bring our own hearts before the Lord. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we just come before you today recognizing our own need for you. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would take your word and hide it in our hearts and transform us with it. Lord, we pray over all of the brokennesses that are happening in our own culture right now. We pray over uh, this recession and we pray over all of this inflation. We pray over the future of the economy. We pray, Lord, over the war in Ukraine. And we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in each of these broken realities in our own day, in our own time. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever looked at a situation and thought, well, that didn't turn out the way I thought it would? Like I said uh, before in other sermons, last summer I started flipping some furniture and I thought, you know what, this isn't going to be that hard. It's wood. It's like right there. You do something to it. It changes. And so I decided this is great. I'm going to start with my first piece of furniture. I'm going to just try putting a new base on it. And you know the old adage, measure twice and cut once. It's a great saying. And it's especially great when you do it. <laughs> because I measured twice and I cut but I did not cut correctly, so I ruined the first piece of furniture, and I thought, okay, well, that didn't turn out the way I thought it would. Piece number two. This one's gonna be easier. No cutting things off. I'm just sanding. I sand this bad boy down, and I go, looks good. Time to paint it. I give it one coat of paint. I think, okay, it looks a little weird. Two coats is necessary. Give it a second coat of paint, 
And as this bad boy is drying, I'm looking at some globby parts of the paint and I'm going, they're not getting any drier. And it turns out <laughs> I had put way too much paint on this thing, especially in some parts. And I had to start all over sanding it all the way back down to the beginning. And I went, well, that didn't turn out the way that I thought it would. And so then I hit it up again and I, I repainted this time the paint's much more even. And then I try to finish it in some polycrylic finishing and uh, I, I finish it and as it's drying, there's all these like bubbles everywhere. And there are these, these, these globs and pockets of finish that weren't smooth. And I looked up what to do about it and it said, you gotta sand it all back down. I ended up having to redo the same piece of furniture three times. It took me two months to simply paint and finish one to two pieces of furniture. And each time I'd go, well, that didn't turn out the way that I thought. Oh, wow, well, that didn't, well, that didn't turn out the way that I thought it would. We all have moments in our lives where we feel like that, and sometimes it's funny, right? Sometimes it's silly, like when you mix up teaspoons and tablespoons in a recipe, but you don't realize it until you start tasting the recipe. There's a reason my wife does the cooking in our house, because it's been more than one dish. I've been like, ooh, that did not turn out the way that I thought it would. Or like maybe on Father's Day this year, <laughs> we had gotten root beer for the dads at church, and we're spending all day popping these root beer caps off, and we find out after the service is over, they're all screw caps. <laughs> that didn't turn out the way that we thought it would. But sometimes it's not funny, and sometimes it's, it's inconvenient and it's frustrating. Like when we're late to a meeting because of forces outside of our control, or when we get mixed up in a project at work that really isn't going well, but we were assigned to it even though it wasn't our choice, and it adds all these unexpected hours to our already busy schedules. Or when a teacher adds more homework to us than she said she would, and now our night is just is over and we feel like, man, all I've been doing is school all day. Things don't always turn out the way we think they will. And sometimes that's frustrating and, and, and inconvenient. And sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it's serious. Like when the family member calls through tears and they say, it's cancer. It was just supposed to be a routine check, but man, that, that didn't turn out the way we thought it would. Or like when our, your marriage is on the rocks and you're feeling at the end of your rope and you're thinking, how did we get here? That didn't turn out the way I thought it would. Maybe it's when that family conflict is ruining yet another year of holidays and family gatherings just because these two people can't have a reasonable conversation and tolerate each other's differences. Man, that didn't turn out the way that I thought it would. Or like when a friend tells us that he or she doesn't wanna be around us anymore and you know you guys could work through it if you could just talk about it, but they don't want to. And so, so many years of memories and so many years of experiences just are gone. Sometimes it's when we hop on social media to check something simple and we see that there's been another shooting or another natural disaster or another crisis. And we just go, man, that didn't turn out the way that I thought it would. Life rarely turns out the way we think it will. That's true for us, and it's true of the people in Scripture. In the book of Esther, we see that no matter how crazy, how stressful, how scary, how heartbreaking, or how evil the events that transpire may be, God is still on the move growing something beautiful through the compost that life so often gives us. And in this portion of Scripture today, Mordecai 
recommits his life to following God and things do not turn out the way he thought they would. His renewal of his faith creates a crisis for not just he and Esther personally, but for the whole nation politically and culturally. But in this place of fear and anxiety, in this place of discouragement and persecution and pressure, they model something profound for us. And today I believe God wants us to learn from their stories so that we can model this same behavior navigating the difficult parts of our own lives and stories. So we're going to take a look at this scripture, but a quick aside before we do. This is a story, meaning that there are many things you can take away from this story. And I just want to give you permission as we read through these scriptures today. I want to give you a freedom. God may speak something to you through this story that's not my main point. I don't claim to have the corner on the fullest biblical understanding of Esther, right? This book is so rich and deep, there's always more to grab from it. And so as I'm reading through this story, God may speak something to you that's not one of my main points. I want you to pay attention to that and listen to that, because I'm going to share what God's put on my heart, but these stories are so rich, they're human lives, they're so full of complexity and nuance, that I just want you to be willing to receive whatever God is speaking to you through these stories today. And so we're going to jump in now with our scripture in Esther chapter 3. It says this, After these events, the event being Mordecai saving King Xerxes' life, King Xerxes honors Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Up to this point in the story, Mordecai's sole mission has been to fly under the radar of the Persian government, not letting anybody know that he was a Jew. That's been his M.O. But in this passage, something has happened inside of Mordecai. We don't know exactly what it was. But when Haman demands Mordecai to bow down to him, Mordecai decides he is done blending in with worshiping anyone who is not God. Not only that, but he lets people know he is a Jew, which is seemingly his reason for not bowing down to Mordecai. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit reigniting, in something, reigniting something inside Mordecai. Maybe it's the fact that Haman was an Agagite, an old enemy of the Jewish people. We don't know what it is for sure, but Mordecai has taken a turn. And this is a huge moment in the story because it's not just a personal faith change. This is a cultural and likely family of origin change. Like I said, Mordecai's MO has been to hide the fact that he's Jewish from everybody and ask Esther to do the same. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think taught him how to do that? Who do you think told him that was important? I think it's incredibly likely that Mordecai did not make that rule up, but inherited it from his parents or grandparents as a family rule. Scripture doesn't say this exactly, but this will help us get an idea of who Mordecai was as a person. 
See, Mordecai's grandparents were free people living in Israel. When Israel was taken over by Babylon, they all of a sudden were now war refugees. Mordecai's parents would have been born in exile, either in Persia or Babylon, depending on who was in power at the time. And Mordecai would have been born in Persia as a refugee from Israel. And I can just hear Mordecai's parents telling little six-year-old Morty that we hide to survive. Remember, Mordecai, don't let anybody know. We hide to survive. Like I said, Scripture doesn't exactly say that this is where the attitude came from, and it certainly doesn't say that phrase, but I think it's more likely that Mordecai's family, who has been trying to survive in exile as Jews in a foreign land, that, that his family, parents and grandparents, made this rule up for him, not him for himself. So when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, he's not just mustering up a courage to stand for his personal faith, he is very likely disobeying some family commands that had been passed down from generation to generation. But Mordecai's step of faith does not turn out the way he thinks it will. And it is quickly punished with ferocity. Because Haman retaliates against this. Haman is furious with Mordecai. He's furious that he won't bow down to him. And when he hears Mordecai is a Jew, he uses this as an opportunity to convince the king to have a state-sponsored genocide. And the craziest part is, he doesn't even tell the king it's against the Jews. He just says, a certain people don't obey your laws. I should be able to kill them all. And the king says, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> I mean, we think that our political system is messed up. This is on another level, okay? This is outrageous. Mordecai finally decides to openly express his faith. He finally decides to, dis to be associated with the people of God. And it's not that he just loses some friends or a family member calls him a bigot. It's, it's that a genocide is declared against his whole people group. I mean, that is a swift and ferocious retaliation. It's, it's actually kind of mind-boggling to me. And I'm not a mind reader, but I can guess that Mordecai was probably thinking, this did not turn out the way that I thought it would. And this is what happens next in the story. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, that this genocide was going to happen, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as so far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the king, or to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is an incredible thing because Haman says, Okay, Mordecai, you're not going to bow down to me. I'm killing your whole people group. What Mordecai doesn't do is go to Haman personally and go, hey, I'm always out of line. I'm so sorry. This is my first time standing up for my faith. Give a guy a little grace. Take my life, okay, just not the Jews. He doesn't do any of that. What he does instead is he decides to publicly mourn with his people. This is the most outspoken and public Mordecai has ever been about his Jewish faith and culture in the whole telling of the story of Esther. This edict is a direct result of Mordecai standing for his faith, but instead of begging for his forgiveness, renouncing his, his faith, going back to the life that he had, he doubles down. Instead, he, he is actively reassociating himself with his people. 
Mordecai is able to publicly grieve because this isn't an issue just about some people. This is an issue about my people. Notice the way he's grieving too. Scripture says he dressed in sackcloth and ashes. It was not exclusive to the Jews to dress this way when they grieved, but it was a very Jewish way of grieving. If we look at the Old Testament, whether it's David or Abraham or Hezekiah, all kinds of people in the Old Testament don sackcloth and ashes for one of two reasons. First, it's a sign of grief. When Jews put on sackcloth, it was an act of embodying the emotional discomfort they were feeling. One would put on sackcloth when someone very important had died to them, or, or to them had died, or when a calamity had struck, or when something nationally was going terribly wrong. The sackcloth wasn't just a random kind of mourning, it was a very Jewish kind of mourning that Mordecai was partaking in. Secondly, the sackcloth was often accompanied by ashes as a form of repentance. It was a way of humbling oneself, literally putting oneself lower than the ashes, crying out for mercy so that God might raise us up. This genocide was a cultural or what we might call systemic evil that was approved of by the majority power because it didn't affect them. And Mordecai's response to this racist act of evil is to turn to God and publicly mourn and repent. And then this is what happens next. Scripture says, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Esther reacts to Mordecai's grief because Esther is unaware of the edict at this point. Mordecai is going to give her a copy in a few minutes, but she doesn't know what's going on. Her sole concern is for Mordecai. Her sole concern is that the man that raised her, the man that cares about her is suffering, and she wants to know why and what she can do about it. And Mordecai's response to Esther is something that is going to shake her, I think, very deeply. This is what happens next. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews, which, by the way, was 750,000 pounds of silver. Absolutely insane. Keep going. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and explain it to her. He told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Mordecai responds to Esther's reaction. And he lets Esther know about this destruction of the Jews that's coming. He explains what's happening and how the situation developed. And it's likely been about five years since Esther's been queen. And she's no longer living with Mordecai day in and day out. She doesn't see him as regularly as she once did. And scripture doesn't say this, but I'm guessing Mordecai's personal transformation came as a shock to Esther. I mean... 
this whole situation happened because you wouldn't bow down to Haman, and why not? You know, like, what love have they ever had for the Jews or their own faith? They've always gone along with stuff like this. Like, why now? What, what about this makes this so important? Mordecai is breaking one of the family codes. He taught Esther. Don't let anyone know about your faith or culture. We hide to survive. Right? He's no longer the man that raised her, though. Something is different, and he's not living by these same rules that he once spoke to her. God is changing him. And Mordecai is inviting Esther into a participation and transformation of her own. And I would guess that that would be pretty difficult for Esther to process. Mordecai wants her to change. She sends him clothes, and he's not looking for clothing. He's looking for participation. He's asking her to publicly break their family code and go public with her faith for the first time. And he's asking her to go before the most powerful person in the land, the one who legally sanctioned this genocide, the emotionally volatile one, the one that does not value woman very highly, the one that uh, is so quick to kill that he didn't even know which race of people he was killing. And he's asking Esther to go before this man and to beg for mercy, and even publicly defy him. And this is how Esther responds. Hathak went back to her and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Mordecai asks Esther to publicly stand for her faith and for her people, and stand against this evil that exists in her community for the sake of God's community. And he is calling her into action, and Esther is understandably uncomfortable with this. And she reminds Mordecai what she could lose if she listens to him. And her response, often like mine, when God calls me into something new, is a response of self-preservation. It's focused on me and what I might lose. And Esther can't quite yet see beyond her own fears and her own loss yet. And I know, like I said, when God calls me up into something new, this is often my first response too. My mind can so easily run to what I might lose instead of what I might gain. I think of the relationships or the hobbies or the friends or the pastimes, the entertainment, the time, the energy I might have to give up. I think of the loss to my reputation, perhaps, or to my opportunities. I think about how tired it's going to make me to do all this work to change and obey Jesus. And I think of falling back and not having what it takes and becoming scared of the failure. And I think this is where Esther is in, in her response to Mordecai in this moment. But Mordecai doesn't let Esther stay in that place. And he doesn't let her self-preserve for long. He responds like this. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. About four years ago, a friend of mine named Dave died in a propane explosion. It was just a routine uh, bed bug cleaning. They were heating up a cabin at Bear Lake Bible Camp to uh, kill some bed bugs. And uh, there was just an, uh, a structural integrity fluke in the tank and it exploded. And it, Dave was caught right in the, the heat of the explosion. And for months, it was unclear whether or not he was going to survive. His whole body had changed from the explosion and he didn't even look like himself anymore. And after months and months of skin grafts and surgeries, it was in December we finally thought Dave was going to pull through. And he didn't. He passed. And I'll tell you what, that's not the way I thought things were going to turn out. Around that time, one of my favorite bands, a band called Switchfoot, came out with this new album. And in one of the songs, they had a line that says, If only life didn't need us to be this brave. There have been a lot of moments in my life where that really, that, that line has hit my soul. As I look out over the landscape of our country and some of the things that have happened over the last four years, and I look at the crises that are brewing on the horizon and the things that we're going to have to deal with, the things that my kids are going to have to deal with, the conversations that I'm going to have to have with my children about how to navigate in the world. And there are lots of times I think, man, I wish life did not need me to be this brave. There's a conversation in J.R.R. Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo and Gandalf are talking about the return of Sauron and their need to take the ring to Mount Doom or die trying. And Frodo says this, Gandalf starts with, always after a defeat and respite, the shadow takes another form and grows again. I wish it need not happen in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. I think this is how Esther might have felt in this moment. I know it's how I would feel. She's confronted with a choice. Does she stay quiet and watch her adoptive father, her people, and her faith die at the hands of her husband, wondering if she could have done something to stop it? Or does she risk her life trying to save them, and perhaps die trying. Things have not turned out the way Esther thought they would. And you know, life never really does turn out the way we think it will. The challenges of life are thrust upon all of us, whether we ask for them or not, and whether we feel ready for them or not. I think Esther begins to realize in this moment a powerful truth that I have found to be true in every season of my life and that I 
personally am challenged with again right now. It will cost her to obey, but it will cost her more not to. She didn't get to choose the time that she was born into, no more than you or I have now. But in this passage, God is inviting her into his work, assuring her through Mordecai that even though she did not get to choose this challenge, she indeed has been born for such a time as this. And Esther and Mordecai had no idea how true that actually would be. Depending on how long Esther's actually been queen and how long Vashti was queen before her, according to history, Xerxes only has about five to ten more years left as king before he gets assassinated and he's no longer king and Esther's no longer queen. So it really truly was indeed for such a time as this that she was made queen. And you know what? The same is true for you and the same is true for me. There are many problems in our time I just honestly wish were someone else's to solve. There are many evils that need to be brought to justice. There are many people so far from God and slaves to sin. There are so many technological advances that we just do not understand and are playing with fire in and that are going to force us to wrestle with what it means to be human in profound and disturbing ways. And yet here we are. We are now. And I believe that God's Spirit is pulling on some of your hearts right now for such a time as this. Because God did not just call Esther up in her faith for her own personal gratification. He did it for her whole people for such a time as this. Because God was doing something in Esther through Esther that was way bigger than Esther. Her saying yes to God was way bigger than just her own personal faith relationship. It was about what God was doing in a whole age across all human history. God orchestrated Esther's whole life so that in her time, in her day, she might step out way beyond herself and way beyond her comfort zone, way beyond her fears into something that echoed for eternity because it is because Esther chooses obedience here that the Jews are not annihilated. It's because Esther chooses obedience here that the next king is going to allow the temple to be rebuilt. It's because Esther chooses obedience that many Jews will return home to rebuild their broken country in faith. And it is because Esther chooses obedience here that the Jews are saved and a Jewish Messiah named Jesus is able to come into the world so that you and I might be sitting here today talking about it. Now, do I believe that if Esther had said no, God would still have saved his people and brought Jesus? Absolutely. But I don't want you to miss this. God invited Esther into something that echoed through eternity. And her small step up in faith, which is, was huge to her and cost her everything at the time. She had to put it all on the line. But that step in faith wasn't just about her. It was about what God was doing across all of eternity. And God is inviting you and I into similar moments in our own day and age. And so how does the story end? Well, Esther decides to go to the king and asks Mordecai and all the Jews in Susa to pray and fast for her for three days so that God would move. And then I'll tell you the rest of it next week as we end our series. So if you want to hear how the story ends, you got to come back for more. Esther comes to the conclusion, though, 
that there are things in this world that are more valuable than her own comfort, that are more important than her own fears, and that are worth fighting for with her own life. And that when it comes to following God, it costs to obey, but it costs more not to. Friends, God wants to change our country. He wants to change our world. He wants to change the brokenness that we see in our cultural culture. He wants to heal our land. He wants to bring justice to evil. God wants to bring hope to hopelessness. And he wants to bring light to darkness and peace to conflict. But any changes we are asking God to do out there have got to start in here. Because a revival out there begins with a revival in here. In order for God to change Persia, God began with calling Mordecai and Esther out of compromise and to stand for their faith. Public transformation can only come from personal transformation. And so today, as you look at the issues in our world and we look at the things that we wish we did not have to be brave enough for in our time, I just want to ask you, where is God calling you to change so that he can change those other things? Are there family commandments in your family that are at odds with God's commandments? Ways you do life that are contrary to his ways? God is inviting you into transformation for such a time as this. Are there places that you're compromising or hiding, hoping that you won't have to experience a, a loss or a death to something you enjoy, hoping that somehow we can keep what we want and still follow Jesus? God is inviting you out of that into transformation for such a time as this. Maybe you've walked away from your faith or you've remained stuck for far too long, knowing what you need to do but afraid to take the step. God is inviting you into transformation for such a time as this. When Jesus died on the cross, he opened the doorway to allow us to place every sin and evil, national, political, cultural and personal upon him on the cross so that he might put those things to death. And when he rose from the dead, he paved a road to a new and transformed life, a life of light, a life of hope, a life of peace, of freedom, of joy, of love, and of truth. And God is inviting you into that life right now. Romans 10.26 says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so friends, whether you're just living in patterns of brokenness that you, your family's been living in for generations, and it's time to change. Whether you've been living in compromise, withholding something from God. Whether you've been uh, hiding your faith or had walked away from it or whether you've never known Jesus, I want to invite you to pray with me right now as we pray that God would begin in us the change that he wants to see and that we want to see in our nation for such a time as this. Lord Jesus, we just confess that you are the King of kings. You are the Son of God, that on you all sin was placed, and when you died, you put all of it to death. And when you rose from the dead, you rose with new life and life to the full. And Lord, we just accept that resurrection gift, Lord. And we repent. 
Lord, we repent of the ways that we've done marriage like our parents instead of like you, the ways that we've done relationships like our parents instead of like you, the ways that we've compromised, Lord, the ways that we have walked away from you, the ways that we have done life our own way instead of your way, Father. We repent of those things, Lord, and we just ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would do the change in me that you want to see in the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed with me, I want to invite you, please, reach out to us via our digital bulletin, via our digital connection card, because we want to help you take your next steps. Thanks for joining us today.